All right, 2 Corinthians 1. So let me kind of catch you up to speed in case this is your first time or you're just joining us. This is our third week going through the book of 2 Corinthians, and we're just getting started into it. Um, Keep in mind what is happening and, and what's going on. Paul planted this church in Acts chapter 18, and he spent 18 months there, it says. So a year and a half, Paul moved here, spent some time investing in the community. We're told that the Jews got kicked out of Rome from Claudius, so Jews are pouring into there. This is a Greco-Roman city, and so there's a mixture of cultures and beliefs, and Paul comes there and he plants a church, and it's incredible. God is doing an amazing work. Now, Paul wrote to this church more than any other church. First and second Corinthians alone makes up more writings to one church than any other church Paul wrote to. So Paul cares deeply for this church. We've mentioned this. Paul references other letters at different points. Second Corinthians might actually be third or even fourth Corinthians. Um, so Paul wrote a lot to this church, and we mentioned this, but just keep in mind, this was a messed up church, like a messy church, meaning a lot of these people got saved from different lifestyles that were just kind of opposite, obviously, to the lifestyle of following Jesus. So when they come together and they're all baby Christians or new to the faith, um, there's a lot of, there's a big learning curve, right, for them. We're told that even some of them are getting drunk off the communion wine. Like, that's, that's an issue. Um, and there's just some issues within the church. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians, he has to address, he's saying, hey guys, like, I love you, but there's some sins among you I need to call out and speak into. So Paul wrote 1 Corinthians kind of with a pretty heavy hand. Uh, and then in 2 Corinthians, you're going to see in our book we're studying, Paul changes his tone, and he's basically comforting them. He's encouraging them. He's saying, good job. You guys heard the first book. You heard the warnings. You heard the exhortations to get out of this sinful lifestyle. And I just want to say, good job. And I want to comfort you and encourage you. So there's kind of like a different take um, in this book. And so as we kind of work our way through, I just want you to kind of see the big themes of Paul begins by comforting them. There are people around accusing Paul. Paul, you're not a man of your word. You said you'd be here, but you're not here. So they're questioning him. They're questioning his leadership. In some ways, even today, he's still kind of giving a defense for what was going on in those circumstances. So there's some details I want to give context to in a little bit. But we remember last week, if you're with us, Paul says, you know what, though? God is faithful to his promises. God is always faithful to his promises. He says in in 2 Corinthians 1, he says, all the promises of God are in Christ, yes and amen. Meaning all of the promises in Scripture are fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Jesus kept all of the commandments you and I could never keep. Therefore, we get the promises that were attached to those commandments. And we looked at this last week where the Bible, throughout the Bible, there's these commandments. If you do this, then I will bless you. If you keep my law, then I will be with you. And there's all these if and then statements. And then here comes Jesus, and Paul says, it's no longer about if and then, but yes and amen. He says, all the promises of God are in Christ, yes and amen. It's no longer if you do this, because we can't do this. Jesus did it. Jesus fulfilled it. Therefore, we get the promises that were attached to those commands. Unbelievable. So if you missed that, go back. You can listen. And it leads us to today, where Paul now is still addressing some just different and difficult topics kind of between him and this church. And so a big theme we see in this passage is just simply loving difficult people. So the title today is Loving Difficult People. Loving Difficult People. Uh, We all might have someone in our life that's a little bit difficult to love. It just takes a little bit extra grace to love them. Don't don't look at them. What are you doing? Don't hit them on the shoulder. And and then the funny thing is, like, we all have someone like that we might have in mind, but little do we know we are that someone that is difficult to love, right? Like, I'm probably talking about myself. My wife's like, amen. Um, Right? We're going to talk about loving difficult people. 
And, and the reason why I, I want to even look at this and focus on this and, and just bring this up, Paul really is a speaking of a person or two specifically, but even the church itself, they were difficult to love at times, and yet Paul loved them. I almost want to title this Leaders Who Love, because you just see Paul and his leadership love so well. And, and really, the, the heart and theme of this passage is just forgiveness. He's basically saying, if you love, there's going to be forgiveness among each other. And so a big part of this passage, our topic today, is, is really looking at just forgiveness, what it is, why it's so important, how the, uh, forgiveness is just attached to the concept of love. Love must do something. One of those things is forgive. I love what C.S. Lewis says. C.S. Lewis says, everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until he has something to forgive. Like, we all love the idea of forgiveness until we're like, but I don't want to forgive. Like, this is really, but you know what they did? This is different. So this is hard. And Paul is going to address those things. And Paul honestly lays out a really good example for us of what it looks like to love people who can be difficult. And so we're going to read the section all the way through, and then we're going to pray and look at it more in depth. So we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. That's where we start off. And we're going to break into chapter 2, verse 11. Yeah, that's right. We're going through chapters because they're all made up anyways. All right. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. Here's what Paul writes. Paul says, but in light of this, like, in light of all the promises of God, or yes and amen, in light of the Spirit being our guarantee, he says, but or moreover, I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but listen, but we work with you for your joy. For you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I caused you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Verse 5, now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. He's speaking of a specific person. For such a one, this punishment by the, by the majority is enough. That punishment, it was sufficient. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may over, be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we were not ignorant of his designs. Paul, again, we're talking about loving difficult people. There was a person that Paul has in mind here, we'll talk about that, who was difficult to love, and he goes, reaffirm your love. Don't be outwitted by Satan's strategies here. Don't be unforgiving in this moment. We need, to re- we need you to reaffirm your love. So we're going to look at and talk about this because I think what a beautiful case study this is for what it looks like to love difficult people in our lives. So let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this time we get. We ask that you would speak, that you would move, that you would bring clarity, that Jesus, in a text like this where Paul's addressing specific issues within that church and his relationship, that you would just speak to our issues within our church, within our relationships, that, God, you'd give us a a grace and love for people who just maybe um, just kind of pushed us to our limits. God, I just ask that there would be forgiveness that can take place today, that, God, there could be tough conversations that come out of this today, 
that Jesus, we'd be made more like you in this process, that we not shy away from hard conversations, we not shy away from correction, and Jesus, ultimately, that you'd be glorified, that we would, we would do what Paul talks about, that we would reaffirm our love for each other, that we'd forgive those who've, who've wronged us or hurt us. So we ask this, Jesus, in your precious name. Amen. Amen. You guys know this, but we, we live in a really unique time in, in human history, like a really bizarre time. Like we, at any moment, at any time, can access our phone and basically see what anyone is doing at any point, anywhere. Like it's unbelievable. Like if there's a celebrity or athlete we like to follow, we can be like, oh, I wonder what they're eating for lunch today. And if they post it, we will know. Like it's kind of weird. You see, if you think about just us explaining this technology like 100 years ago, like yeah, we have this little device and we like literally can just search anything, know anything, know anything about anyone. It's really creepy. Like, oh my gosh, like what do you do with this, like, this technology? Like we just like watch cat videos, you know? And like, like it's really weird. Like we just have a really unique just thing before us. And I think it's become so normal to us. Like, I really do want us to get this. You know, we can see what someone posted 10 years ago, five years ago, three years ago, today, yesterday, know their inner thoughts. If they post a struggle, if they post a personal thing, if they post a personal belief, we can see that and read that and have like insight into what they're thinking. We might not even know them. We know nothing about them, but we just know what they're giving us. And here's what the proverb says. Proverb says, uh, in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking right? Like in a multitude of words, sin is not lacking. You better believe with all of the social media stuff we have going on, with all the comments that are being said, all the words being written, all the words being said, you better believe in the multitude of words we're going to see sin. Like we can see someone's inwards beliefs, sinful beliefs, like things that are selfish or self-centered, things that kind of would look like just their ego being out there. We get insights into all of these things. And we live in a really unique moment or time where if someone does something or says something wrong or sinful, there is consequences and we get that. But we also live in a time if someone just posts something that we don't like, that we don't agree with, we will try to end them, right? And we call this cancel culture, right? There's this idea, like they posted something, I just don't like it. We got to get them fired. And we live in a really weird time where people who even try to defend other people, like, well, I think we missed the context here. Like, we should show a little grace. We got to fire you now, too. Like, we're, we're so weird. And, and I'm, I'm bringing this up, honestly, because I want us to think about this. We live in a, in a cultural moment where, like, unforgiveness is absent. There's no room for making mistakes. There's no room for forgiveness. In fact, forgiving someone is a sign of weakness. You know, we live in a really bizarre moment. I honestly believe, and I'm praying, like, God, you know, I, I've kind of hope, like, in our cancel culture, and even our woke generation moment, I'm honestly praying like, that eventually people will get so sick of falling over and over again. The leaders of movements, they fall to their own movement. I'm, I'm eventually wondering, God, like, people are going to be craving forgiveness. People are going to be craving acceptance. People are going to be craving a second chance. And I honestly believe we're like on the cusp of revival because of the church, the place, saying, come on, you're welcome. We're saying we've all said dumb things. We've all made bad decisions. At the foot of the cross, we're all guilty. We're all sinners. And you are welcome here to not have your identity based off some statement you made, but your identity based off Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done. And I really believe the church is like what people are craving they don't know. I believe the gospel of Jesus is what people are craving and they don't even know they're craving it. Like I think people are beginning to want forgiveness. Like why is there no forgiveness? And the church is saying there is forgiveness at the feet of Jesus. There's forgiveness at the cross. And I really do believe as, as silly as our upside down world is, I really believe that this will create create a longing and hunger for forgiveness. And that's what we find here in our text today. I actually love what one author said. A guy named John MacArthur wrote decades ago something that I think is so spot on to the moment we're in. Listen to what he says. He says, we live in a culture that views forgiveness not as a virtue, but as a sign of weakness. Some even argue that forgiveness is unhealthy. 
self-help books boldly assert that people should cultivate self-esteem and blame others for causing their problems. The victim mentality reigns supreme. And as a result of these and other perspectives, vengeance and retaliation are exalted, not the noble and Christ-like virtues of forgiveness and restoration. I mean, it sounds like he wrote this yesterday. He's saying we're creating this moment where everyone's beginning to blame others, be angry at others. We want to fight. We want to be vengeful. We want to retaliate. And he goes, and we're missing out on the Christ-like opportunity of forgiveness. I think forgiveness and restoration is a lost art. I think that church offers forgiveness and restoration to those who say or do or doing things that we offer a place to say, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter even what you're doing. Jesus wants to give you a new start, a new life. There's forgiveness in the cross. And my point is, church, I think we really do have a message that the world is hungry and craving for. Amen? This is so important. Because Paul's talking about loving difficult people. Loving people that are hard to love. Loving people that are making stupid, selfish, sinful decisions. And Paul's talking about what does it look like to love people like that? He seems to have someone in mind, or even a church that's like that. And he's describing, like, here's what love looks like. So as we walk through our text, we're going to pull these from our text today. We're going to talk about loving difficult people. There's three points and three big ideas, honestly, that Paul shows us here. Here's the first one. Uh, Love puts others' joy first. Love puts others' joy first. Love corrects and disciplines. And then we'll see love forgives and encourages. Paul's walking us through what it looks like to love difficult people. And we actually see him do this. We see the first point again is love puts others' joy ahead of their own. Paul does this in verse 23. Can we just read verse 23 again to get the context of what's happening? Uh, Chapter 1, verse 23, Paul says, I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. For you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And as I wrote, as I did, uh, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Again, love puts others' joy first. You got, well, I want you to understand the, the context of this. Remember last week we brought the issue? The issue was this. There are people saying, Paul, you said you would be here. Stay the winter with us. You lied. You're not a man of your word. We looked at 1 Corinthians 16. Paul says, if perhaps the Lord allows, like he uses languages not like promises, but if the Lord allows me, I want to stay with you for the winter. Here's why I'm bringing this up. You know what really happens? Paul didn't get to go back and stay the winter. Paul is in Ephesus. Here's about some drama within the church. Paul makes a quick visit. He mentions this in verse 1, or he mentions this in verse 2 and 3. He makes a quick visit, a painful visit, and he goes, you know what? I determined not to come back to you. I determined not to come for the winter because I didn't want to bring you another painful visit. Like, we had such a hard moment and hard conversations, hard discussion. I left, and I decided not to come back because I wanted to put your joy above mine because I knew that me being there would not be a joyful moment for you. All right, that's kind of the context, but I don't want to miss the principle. The principle of what he's saying is, I'm not here to lord over your faith, but I'm here to see your joy expressed and complete. Actually, I love how the New King James does put it. He says, I'm a fellow worker of your joy. I want to talk about this for just a second. Uh, When it comes to loving people, it is so essential to put others' joy ahead of our own. That's what Paul's saying. 
I actually think this is one of my favorite verses on leadership, honestly, in the Bible. Because Paul, as, a, as a, an apostle, he's a leader, he's a church planter, he's led these people to faith in Christ. Paul is saying, listen, I'm not here to be a lord over your faith. I'm here to be a fellow worker of your joy. What a good definition of a leader, a fellow worker of your joy. I'm here to come alongside you to help you experience fullness of joy. That's my role. I love this because we've all had leaders who try to lord over us. I mean, think about a boss that was just like, he loved or she loved being a boss, all right? Like, think about the boss that's like, well, I'm the boss. And you're like, ugh. And like, they weren't here to develop you, grow you, invest in you. They just wanted to lord over you. Paul's saying, no, no, I'm not here to lord over. I want to be a fellow worker of your joy. I think this is a great, again, a great definition of a leader, by the way. How do we say my, my role here is to be a fellow worker of your joy? I want to see you have fullness of joy. And in fact, think about this church. For, for me, my role, your role, the idea too is, you know what, in order to have fullness of joy, there will be tough conversations. There will be difficult moments. But the motive and the goal behind this is to have you have fullness of joy. And we need to talk about this because I think that Paul expressing his desire for them. I want you to be, I want you to have a fullness of joy. I think we must remember and keep in mind that God is not some killjoy. Like, we have sometimes this view of God that God doesn't want us to have joy. God just wants us to walk around and be sad. I'm sorry, but we got to understand that the kingdom of God is the kingdom of joy. You know, Romans 14, 13 says, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is different than the kingdom of this world. It's not based off just what you might do, eating, drink. It's based upon something inner, righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Spirit. I love that they throw joy in there. You know, C.S. Lewis wrote about heaven a lot, and he said, joy is the serious business of heaven. I love that. Like, what's so serious about heaven? The joy, man. Do we know that God wants you to have fullness of joy? Psalm 16 says this, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. Like, we can sometimes view the Bible and the commands, like, hey, live this way, do these things, repent. This is not to steal joy from you, but to give you more joy. The commands are not there to harm you or to take away joy from you. In fact, when we keep God's word, God knows how he made us, and he knows if we keep his word, we'll experience more joy. Amen, is this making sense? Paul's like, this is my job. I'm not here to lord over you. I want to be a fellow worker of your joy. I'm around 16 years old. I probably mentioned this before, but when I really started like wanting to like take my faith serious, I'm like wrestling with some things. One of the best examples from my life was a pastor named John Corson. And I remember we would go to his house after school or after basketball practice. And I kind of have like, who, I didn't really know any pastor personally at the time. I'm like, whatever, this is just weird. But I remember he was just such a joyful guy. And he'd come down, he'd like, he's like, hey, I ordered you guys pizzas. And he'd like put his arm around, he's like a big lumberjack guy. And he's like, hey, how's basketball going? How's coach treating you? And he's like, man, you're killing it out there. You're doing so good. And I'm like, why is this pastor so joyful? Pastors aren't joyful. Like, I don't know. My mindset was like, this isn't right. You're supposed to be serious, aren't you? And he had so much joy. It was captivating. It was something where I'm like, what, what is this? And this is what it comes. It comes from just walking with Jesus, knowing Jesus. The kingdom of God is joy in the Holy Spirit. And, and Paul is saying, do you guys not see that these difficult moments and conversations we're having are ultimately for your joy? Because sometimes before there's joy, there's going to be pain. And Paul, Paul is like, I'll take that pain on for your joy. I'll, I'll, I'll put myself in an inconvenient place. I won't stay with you for the winter. What my plans were, I have to find a new plan out. I have to do some new thing. I'm going to inconvenience myself if it will help your joy because that's, that's what I care about. Even the discipline, that's for your joy. It's just interesting to me how Paul is trying to just say, this is the heart behind all these things, your joy. I, and I don't want us to miss this. Love puts others' joy first. And I, just, I love Paul's heart. He goes on in verse 1. Let's keep reading. But in verse 1, he goes on to say, I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. I don't know why, but I just thought it was such a funny verse. Like, I determined I'm not going to come and make a painful visit to you. And here's something that's interesting to me. Like, Paul obviously is like talking to himself like, I can't do it. I can't go. 
Like, I can't go and bring him up another painful visit. Paul's like, in the way it's worded too, it's like he's talking to himself about this. You know, we've talked about this, but there really is something about just spiritual self-talk. There's something about like what you tell yourself, what you're thinking, how you're deliberating, how you're making decisions. There's something about what you tell yourself. This is like what David does constantly in the Psalms. In, in Psalm 103, David says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that's in me. Like David does this. He's like, soul, you need to bless the Lord. Psalm 42, soul, hope in God. There really is something about like when you're kind of in a, a decision making, like Paul to make a decision, there's something about just having this spiritual self-talk of like, you need to remind yourself of who God is. You need to kind of speak to yourself with scripture. This is something very healthy. If someone says something or did something to you and like rubs you the wrong way and you're like going about your day and you just like, you live with it and you replay that scenario over and over again, there's something about, you know what, Lord? Uh, I know they love you. I know they love me. I must have interpreted that wrong or must be looking at this too much. God, I want, and having just that spiritual, not just the self-help self-talk, but I'm talking about gospel-centered self-talk where Paul's like, hey, or David's like, bless the Lord, oh my soul. Or how about this? In in 1 Samuel 30, David just lost a battle. His men are against him. His men want to kill David. And it says in Psalm, or 1 Samuel 30, verse 6, it says, David strengthened himself in his God. Just the idea of like strengthening yourself in God. God, I know who you are. And, and, and Paul is just kind of having this dilemma. I want to go, but I don't want to go. I don't want to make this painful visit. And, and then here's what we see. And, and this sets the tone for the rest of Corinthians. Verse 4, we see like just the battle Paul was having within his heart to these people. And I don't want you to miss it. So let's read verse 4 because this kind of sets the tone for us of the book. Paul ri- writes in verse 4, he says, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Paul said, I'm writing this letter to you just filled with tears. Like, I want you to see the father heart of, of Paul in this, because I think it represents, I think, the heart of God for us. Here's, here's what I mean. Um, how do you read the Bible? Like, when you read the Bible, what tone do you hear it in? Like, when you read the Bible, how do you hear the voice of God? Like, how do you hear the heart of God? Paul's like, I have many tears. This is hard for me. I'm calling you out on your sin. And that's not an easy thing for me. Don't think I take this lightly. And and I want to see you have joy. But this is painful for me. This is difficult for me. And I want you to know how much I love you in the process. And I'm saying this, when you and I read the Bible, like from here on out, do we read the Bible with this tone of the love of God for us? Paul's like, I want you to know the abundant love I have for you. How much more is the abundant love of God for us? So meaning when we read scriptures, honestly, what's the kind of tone we read it in? I, I do find this fascinating. Because I think for so long, I would read the scriptures in like this judgmental tone, God is out to want to get me. You know, you think of like in Genesis 3, right after Adam and Eve sinned. In Genesis 3, 9, God is walking through the garden and he says, Adam, where are you? You know, and I, I kind of read this, like the first time reading this as like a kid, I just think my dad, like, where are you? I'm like, get you. Get you so bad right now. I'm like, oh my gosh. Like, like Adam's hiding, like it scares me. I'm like, oh my gosh, like, God, like, he's hiding from you. We got to hear the father heart of God. It's a father who's going out looking for his lost son. Hey, where are you? This is not, I'm get, I can't wait to get my hands around your neck. This is not the father heart of God. I think it's a woman caught in adultery and all of her accusers are there. And Jesus writes something in the sand, they all leave. And in John chapter eight, it's just Jesus and this woman caught in adultery. And Je- Jesus says, hey, listen, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more, right? And you can almost read that or hear that. It's like, that's your last warning. Stop sinning, go and sin no more. Like you can, it's easy to read the scriptures like with that tone or language, but rather than just hearing the heart of Jesus, like, hey, you're not condemned. 
whom the sun sets free is free indeed. Now go and sin no more. Don't go back to this lifestyle. You're free. You don't have to be a slave to this lifestyle anymore. Go and sin no more. My point is, it says this about Jesus. It says the common people heard Jesus gladly. The common people heard Jesus gladly. There's something about the tone of Jesus. There's something about the sayings of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus. Though heavy at times, deny yourself, pick up your cross. Though difficult at times, there's something about the tone of Jesus where they heard him gladly. How you read the Bible matters. The tone in which you read the Bible matters. Would you agree? The tone in which you filter the scriptures matter. Paul basically, and read Corinthians now from here on out, he's like, know that I'm writing this with tears in my eyes. This is hard for me. There's going to be some hard things I'm going to say. It it causes me affliction, but I want you not to lose sight of the abundant love I have for you in the process. There's almost this heaviness and this gladness. I actually love what one pastor said. He was talking about like our job and role is to kind of communicate both these things. So John Piper said this. He says, gladness and gravity, or like heavy matters, weighty matters, should be woven together in the life and preaching of a pastor. Love for people does not take precious realities lightly, hence the, the call for gravity. And love for people does not load people with the burden of obedience without providing the strength of joy to help them carry it, hence the call for gladness. There's just this, this idea of gladness and gravity. It's going to be weighty, but it's for your joy. This is what we see in Paul. It's going to be heavy, but it's for your joy. See, listen, and loving difficult people looks like putting their, their joy above yours. That's what Paul did. But then it leads to number two, which is loving difficult people will look like this. It looks like it corrects and disciplines. See, love will correct and discipline. And Paul is referencing something in verse five and six about this. So let's read verse five. Verse five, Paul says, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. <laughs> For such a one, this punishment by the, by the majority is enough. It's sufficient. What is he talking about? Paul is referring back to a person, and if there's a lot of kind of just there's a couple disagreements on who this is. It's either someone who is calling out Paul's apostleship and authority, and Paul says he's caused a lot of harm, harm to me, but honestly, not to put it too lightly, he's causing a lot of harm to you. And he goes, and your punishment to him is enough. It's sufficient. It worked. Your judgment, your discipline that you put on him is enough, just so you kind of stay with me, because I know that's kind of worded funny. Here's the idea. He's either referring to that or to this man in in 1 Corinthians 5. We mentioned this man. There's a man in the church of Corinth who is sleeping with his stepmom. And Paul's like, this man needs to stop. You need to call him out. You need to get him out of this lifestyle. And it seems as if that man actually took the message, heard it, and repented because Paul says the punishment for him is enough. It's sufficient. It worked. So here's the idea. Love corrects and disciplines. Now, without me just saying this, I realize I, this, I actually want to read this story because there's actually something really profound in this passage because love will discipline and correct. So let's see. 1 Corinthians 5. If you would turn there, it's like a few pages backwards. 1 Corinthians 5. Uh, it's literally like four pages away. 1 Corinthians 5. I just want to read the story. I want to read the context. I want to read the issue that was happening in this church. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. Here's what's going on. Paul writes, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For, for though absent in body, I'm present in spirit, and as if present, I'm already, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with you, the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. 
Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Verse 11, let's just skip down. Verse 11. He says, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual morality or greed or is idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler, not even to eat with such a one. All right, stay with me. Let's understand this context. When I say love corrects and disciplines, obviously understand what's going on. Paul's like, man, amongst this church community, amongst this family, there was a man sleeping with his stepmom. Paul's like, pagans don't even do that, man. And he goes, and you're arrogant. He says to the church, you're arrogant. Obviously, there's, there's some sort of boasting. He goes, stop boasting. There's probably this mindset or atmosphere of like, aren't we so great? Aren't we so loving? Like this man who's sleeping with his stepmom, he feels grace and forgiveness and love and acceptance here. And Paul's like, you're bo- this is not okay. You should be mourning, not boasting. And so Paul says something incredibly heavy. What does he say? He goes, I want you to hand this man over to Satan so that his spirit may be saved. What is that? He's basically talking about, as we saw in verse 11, he says, cut off fellowship, cut off relationship from him. Don't even eat with such a person. Why? Because what that should create is, oh my gosh, this amazing community that I have. My friends, like I'm growing in my faith. I'm loving the Lord. They, they really, they pulled me aside to say, we love you so much. We cannot let you continue in this sin and continue in this lifestyle without you being repentant. We have to cut off fellowship from you. Now, obviously, this is not referring to people who, like, sin. Like, we all sin, but unrepentant sin. Someone you say, hey, there's sin in your life, like a lifestyle of sin. You claim the name brother, verse 11. You claim to be a follower of Jesus. You claim to be all in, and yet there's this lifestyle within you that is unrepentant. Like, we brought it to your attention. You're still not repenting. And he goes, no, don't even eat with such a one. And this seems pretty heavy to people. Like, why, why would he do this? And the heart of Paul is still a beautiful thing. What is it? He goes, so that he might be saved, so the Spirit might be saved on the day of the Lord. Yeah, obviously, this is something that we don't see a lot today. Like, let's be honest, this is not something we see a lot in churches. We will call this, this passage, like a passage on church discipline. Uh, maybe you've heard this term, like, excommunication. Just the idea of, like, hey, cutting off fellowship for the sake of someone repenting and believing. You go, why don't we see this very often? Well, because we live in a place and culture and climate where it's kind of like, well, this church actually lovingly disciplined me, did it the right way, but you know what? I'm just gonna go to another church and they don't know who I am. I can start all over and be free. And it's sadly that this backfires. That's why sometimes, actually, it's funny you know, that we talk to their pastors and be like, hey, tell me this person. I know that your church last week and now they're you know, we sometimes do that, right? And there's something healthy and beneficial going, what's, like, what's going on? Tell me about this person. Tell me about what's happening. Are they, do they need to go back and own something, repent? See, it's sad we don't see this always exercise. Why I'm bringing this up? Because discipline and, and really correcting someone is a lost art, but when done well, it can lead to someone's salvation. It can lead to someone growing in maturity and faith in Christ. We've had to exercise discipline in minor ways, and thankfully, we have seen repentance. This is an extreme case and scenario. And, and if you're still struggling with this, like, why? Why does the Bible even deal with church discipline in this way? Like, and again, this is so weird. Hey, happy Sunday morning. Let's talk about church discipline. Only the exchange you can find this. Um, not really. Not at all, at all. But this idea of like, we're going to talk about church discipline on a Sunday. And what is this going, what's going on here? Why is this important? Why does this matter so much? Here's why this matters. A guy named Sam Storms wrote about this. And I think he put it really well. We'll just throw up some verses behind me and some ideas. He says, here's why discipline is necessary. It's to maintain the purity of the church. You can see all the verses attached to this. Uh, Why is it necessary? Uh, Scripture requires it. Why is it necessary? To maintain a proper witness to the world, to facilitate growth, and to preserve the unity in the body. It's necessary because it exposes unbelievers in the process. It's to restore the erring brother and sister to obedience and fellowship. It's necessary to get them to obedience. For seven, or number seven, to prevent others from sinning. It's to stir on others going, I don't want that. It's to avoid corporate discipline from Jesus. We went through this in the seven churches of Revelation. It's like, let's stop it now before there's corporate discipline. Uh, Why is it necessary? Because sin is rarely, if ever, an individual issue. It almost always has corporate ramifications. 
It almost always affects everyone. Why is it necessary? Because the willingness to discipline was a mark of maturity in a church's corporate life. It's a sign of maturity and growth. See, there's something important about this idea. Paul is saying, and your discipline for this guy, it's enough. It's sufficient. Can I tell you what's crazy about our passage? Is that church discipline works. <laughs> it worked for this guy. He's like, I, 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 I realized my lifestyle was counter to the life of Jesus, to the way of Jesus. I repent. And now Paul's saying, now reaffirm him. And we're going to get to that in a second. Now, you might be just wondering, though, like, when is this necessary? Like, when do you do church plus discipline? There's three examples in Scripture. Here's when you do it. When there's unrepentant, consistent moral sin, when there's divisiveness and serious doctrinal error, and when there's just general offenses, and you can read about that in 2 Thessalonians 3. The point is, there's a few instances the Bible gives, like, hey, here's when you kind of have that talk or that conversation with someone. Here's what that looks like. Again, you're probably wondering, why is this so heavy? Why does the church do this? Why do we see discipline this way? Why is this necessary? Let me just put it the way they, uh, the Solomon put it in the Proverbs. He said it this way. He says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, right? But the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Here's the idea. Love will correct and discipline. Friends will say the hard thing. Friends will do the hard thing. Friends will have the hard conversation. An enemy says, no, man, they're all wrong. They're all crazy. They don't know you. That's an enemy. A true friend will say to you, I love you so much, but they're pointing out some things in your life that you need to hear. Stop fighting this. You might need to embrace it. Maybe God wants to do something in your life. Maybe God wants to speak and move and work. And I love you so much to say this to you because I want to see you grow and I want to see you thrive. Church, do we, do we get the difference? Like this is, I think, a lost art today. I think the difference is the church will say the, in a loving way, in a loving mentality, removing obviously the plank from their eye, but they'll approach someone in a spirit of gentleness and say, I want to see you restored. We love you. We want to see a fullness of joy. This lifestyle decision is keeping you from that. We're going to share the hard thing with you so you can repent. And I've sat with many people. I've sat with husband and wives, and it's very difficult when one is unrepentant and one is repentant. And it's hard for you to say, it's all of them, it's not me. And you're going, no, no, this is on you. You have to own this. You ha- we got to work here like with repentance. You can't really do much if someone's unrepentant and prideful. And we see Paul really addressing these things in the church. Again, here's why this is so important. If we saw this played out from a, a parenting perspective, like imagine this. Imagine we said, I just never want to discipline. Imagine parents like, oh, little Johnny, I just never want to tell them no. I don't, I don't like the word no. So when they ask them for something, I'm going to give it to them. If they say, I want a puppy, they get a puppy. If they want ice cream, they get ice cream. You know, if they want, you know, I don't know, sugar for breakfast, they can give them sugar for breakfast. So whatever they want, I'm going to give them. Like we would say to that parent, you are a psychopath. Like you're going to raise like a serial murderer. Like you can't do that. Like you have to say no. You have to discipline. You have to correct. Like if my son wants to hit someone, they can hit someone. They probably have a reason why they got hit. You go, no. Like you're going to raise a murderer. Stop it. Right? Right? The idea is, obviously, we'd say, if someone's in sin, if some, like, you've got to correct it. They can't just let this go on. And it's funny. We might laugh, but here's the idea. We want this kind of relationship with God. We want a God who will never correct us. We want a God who will never discipline us. I don't want there to be a God that tells me I'm wrong. I don't want there to be a God that says, stop sinning or stop doing these things. I like these things. Like, we want God to be a parent who's just disengaged. We want God to kind of be like a grandparent that's like, you know, here's some sugar. Go back to mommy and daddy. That's what we want God to be like. Like, no. God's not going to be that. God says, I love you too much for that. I love you. I'm going to discipline you. I love you. I'm going to correct you. You know, heed my correction. Heed my discipline. It's because I love you. The author of Hebrews says this. The author of Hebrews makes it really clear. If God loves you, he's going to discipline you. It says, whom God loves, he chastises. Whom God loves, he disciplines. If you're not being disciplined, that's when you should worry. The idea, though, is discipline is a sign of God's love for you. Discipline is a sign that God is with you and working on you. This is so important in the church life. Because it's saying that we just want to see fullness of joy. And if there's something in someone's life where we'll lovingly call out and correct, we'd say, don't be so quick to fight it. 
we are all like that little spoiled child who wants to say no to mom and dad, but eventually you mature and grow and say, you know what, they're looking out for my best. You know what, they want what's best for me. Listen, love puts others' joy first. Love will correct and discipline. Amen? And it is hard. It's hard to correct and discipline. It's probably the hardest part of my role. It's the hardest part of a parent's role. It's hard to say, I love you so much, but you're having self-destructive behavior, and I cannot let you continue in that. And there's no place for that here. But if you repent, man, there's grace. And this is what Paul says now, number three. Love forgives and encourages. Because in verse seven, Paul's like, it's time to love. It's time to affirm. It's time to forgive. This guy, it worked. It was sufficient. He responded to it. Now you need to forgive him. Let's read verse seven. Verse seven, uh, Paul writes, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive indeed. Indeed, what, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the name, in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Again, love forgives and encourages. Paul says something in verse 8. I just, you hear the heart of it. He goes, I beg you to reaffirm your love to him. See, you can't just say you love someone. Love has action. Love does, right? One of those doing things that love does is forgiveness. Paul's saying, you need to show him love. Here's how you can show him love. Forgive him. Reaffirm your love to him. Welcome him back in. This is how people will know you're my disciples, by your love for one another. So love will forgive. I know we He's hurt you. I know he's hurt many people around you. I, I know it was self-destructive behavior. I know at first you probably didn't discipline him. They probably didn't discipline right away. That's probably why Paul went to visit them. And they probably thought that. Now that they disciplined him, he goes, now you want us to forgive the man? He's like, yes, absolutely, because it was sufficient. He responded to it. So you must now affirm him and love him and forgive him. And this is so beautiful. He's saying, hey, forgive this man, embrace this man. I know it's hard for you to call him out. And I know it's going to be hard for you to affirm him and welcome back in, but it's time to forgive and it's time to love. And, and this is what we want to talk about. I want to talk about for forgiveness for just a second. Because forgiveness is difficult. Like, let's not downplay this. You can say, why would the church just forgive the man? It's, it's hard to forgive. We know it's hard to forgive. We know there's been people in our lives who have hurt us, and it's hard to forgive them. There's people who wronged us, or they still, on, just in an ongoing way, wrong us. They hurt us. They say things. It is, it's very hard to forgive. I understand that sometimes, even in the church, I can, it can sound like this. I don't want it to sound like this. But it's like, hey, just forgive the person. We know it's not easy. You know, when the Bible uses the word forgive, there's a couple Greek words. One of the words to forgive means to release the debt, right? So one of the ideas is, hey, they've hurt you. They've wronged you. They've like, in a sense, they, have a, they, they owe you. They owe you. I'm asking you to release that debt. They might owe you. Release whatever they owe you. Release the debt. It's funny. The word here, though, for forgive, it doesn't mean to release the debt like it usually does. The word here for forgive literally means give a gift. He said, forgive them. Give them a gift. You know, forgiveness is a gift, Forgiveness is something like it costs you. It costs you to forgive someone. You know, when you buy a gift, it costs you. It costs you to give a gift to someone. And forgiveness, someone who's hurt you and wronged you, I mean, when you give them the gift of forgiveness, you feel that a little bit. Like, I'm, I'm, grant, I'm giving you forgiveness. I'm releasing the debt, yes. But I mean, you think about our English word forgive, it, that's what it's the idea. It's like forgive. It's, it's, it's the idea of giving. You're giving something to someone. I'm giving you forgiveness. I'm forgiving you. I'm, I'm giving you this. And Paul is saying, forgive this man. Reaffirm your love for him. Just four just biblical truths on forgiveness really quick. Can we just see this? Um, we are never more like God than when we forgive. We got to understand uh, just the quality and nature of God 
is one of forgiveness. I love how in Nehemiah 9, they're rejoicing over uh, the altar that's being built. They're rejoicing over what God is doing. In Nehemiah 9, it says, you are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful. You are ready to pardon. Isn't this a beautiful attribute of our God? Did you know that your God is ready to pardon? It's like he's like ready to forgive. Like, come on, ask for forgiveness. Forgive. Like, there's a side of it where God is quick to forgive. He's ready to pardon. Charles Spurgeon said this. He goes, you know, slow are the feet of repentance, but quick are the feet of forgiveness. Slow are the feet of repentance from the unbeliever to God. We're, we're slow to repent. We're slow to go to God. But quick or swift are the feet of God who forgives. Quick are the feet of God who forgives. He's ready to pardon. He wants, he's, it's that Luke chapter 15, the prodigal son goes astray and obviously the father's just waiting, like come home, repent, repent. And then the father goes running to him. A shameful thing to do for Jewish males was to run. And, and I wish that was our culture too. I hate running. But he's like, it's a shameful thing to go running to him. And he runs to him. And it's not the son running to the father. It's the father running to the son. Quick are the feet of forgiveness. Your God is ready to pardon. Are you ready to repent? I I really do believe that God is way more quicker to forgive than we are to repent. And he's saying, man, if you repent, God, quick are the feet of repentance. Quick are the feet of forgiveness. God's ready. So when we forgive, we're, we're being like God. When we forgive other people, it's like, man, you're, you're, you're being so similar to your God because God is so quick to forgive. That's what God is like. Not just that, but listen to this. God has forgiven us of such great sins, therefore we must forgive others of their sins. Like the Bible constantly beats this drum. It's Matthew 18, right? The person who is in debt, what many people would say equivalent to like 60 to $90 million in debt. And then he goes, please have mercy on me. Forgive me. And he goes, you know what? I actually will. I forgive you this $90 million debt. Thank you so much. And then it says another man owed him 100 denarii, which is like $12,000, like maybe three months of wages. So he goes, he goes, hey, give me my $12,000. And the guy's like, wait a second. I just forgave you your $90 million and you want to hold this guy to $12,000? Well, yeah, I got to start with something. Like, oh, no, no, right? And, and this idea of like, no, no, you've been forgiven us so much, we, we have to forgive. Again, I know this is one of those things that's easier said than done, but can we just meditate on what we've been forgiven of? Can we just think about all that God has forgiven us of? All the future sins I'll commit that God's forgiven me of? I mean, I've been forgiven of much. You've been forgiven of much. So he's, Jesus makes it clear, you're gonna therefore forgive. How could you be forgiven of so much and yet not forgive? But Josiah, you don't know what they've done to me. You have no idea how they hurt me or wronged me. I, I don't. Do you know what you've done to Jesus? Do you know how much we've hurt him? Do you know how much he's forgiven us of? I don't think we truly fathom. I don't think we truly, I think he could say, you don't know, but I forgive you. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I just think that there is an amazing example in the person of Jesus. And he says, hey, as you've been forgiven, forgive. Forgiven people, forgive people. <laughs> that is just the idea. You've been forgiven, forgive. Not only that, Jesus takes it one step further, which is almost intimidating to read. He says, in Matthew 6, 14, if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. Jesus is like, you can't, how can you not forgive in light of being forgiven? You're going to forgive because I've forgiven you. If you can't forgive, maybe you're not forgiven. I mean, this is the words of Jesus. There's just something about the, the culture and community of the church is just so different than the world because the world will say, no, no, they don't deserve your forgiveness. You're like, you're right. That's why it's a gift. Like, it's just, it's so different than what the world says about just people who've hurt us or wronged us, or look what they did to me, look what they did to my family, look what they did to my history, and then the cross says, you have to offer forgiveness in Jesus. 
What if Jesus said all those same things to you? What if every excuse you ever made about not forgiving someone, Jesus made the same excuses to you? There's no, we have to, this is like the only option he leaves us with. I mean, this is, this is why I think also at the same time, the church, though messed up as it is, is so beautiful. All these people come together saying, I'm forgiven, I'm going to forgive. We're not, and again, if you struggle with forgiveness, I understand. Let me say this. We did do a teaching on this back in the fall of, I think, 2019. It's called The Practice of Forgiveness. And we talk about eight things forgiveness is not. And rather than me getting that today, I would say go back and listen. Because forgiveness is also not certain things. It's not retrusting someone. It doesn't mean you have to go live life with them on a daily basis. But it also is releasing the debt and giving them a gift. And so if you do struggle with that, I say, please go back and listen and let Jesus kind of work on your heart in this way. But this will be the culture. This will be the community. And lastly, here's why it's so important. Paul says in verse 11, we must forgive because Satan wants to divide. He's saying we must forgive. The only option here is to forgive because Satan is hoping we don't forgive. Look at what he says in verse 11. Verse 11, he says, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we're not ignorant of his designs. He goes, you need to forgive this man. Why? I don't want to be outwitted or outsmarted by Satan. He, he, we know what he's up to. One version, I just like this paraphrase. It says, the point is that we shouldn't be outsmarted by Satan. We know what he's up to. Like, we know what he's up to. Satan wants to divide us. Satan wants to polarize us. Satan wants us to see everything through a political lens or this lens or whatever it might be. And the gospel of Jesus is so different. It's saying, no, no, we must forgive each other because Satan wants us to be divided. He wants us to read someone's posts on social media and go, well, they're my enemy now. Like, he wants that. No, you have Jesus in common. They're not your enemy. And my, my point is, this is going to be so key for the function and health of any church. There must be forgiveness. He goes, Satan's up to something. We know he's up to something. He wants to divide and have a culture of unforgiveness. We forgive to fight Satan's plans. It's crazy to think that forgiveness thwarts Satan's plans. Like, to forgive is to change his game plan like, dramatically. Like, well, I was hoping they wouldn't forgive each other and be at odds with each other for the rest of their lives, right? Like, I was talking to some other leaders and pastors. And I'm like, I never want to pastor again in an election year. I just never want to be a pastor again. Like, I'm going to retire in 2024 and you'll see me in 2025. Like, I just don't want to do it, right? Because it's crazy how people are so at odds with each other. It's crazy to see the body of Christ so divided. I go, we have Jesus, the most important person in common. We've all been cleansed and forgiven by the body and blood of Jesus. And Satan wants to divide us. And Paul is saying, listen, I, I know he's hurt you. People will say hurtful things in the next few years. People will say hurtful things today, tomorrow. And, and he's saying, listen, correct, discipline, come to them. If you need to bring someone with you, do that. If you need to bring the elders of the church, do that. Matthew 18, yes, absolutely do those things. But love is not just going to give up. Love is not just going to go somewhere else. Love is going to fight. Love is going to put others' joy first. Love is going to correct and discipline. Love is going to forgive and encourage and comfort, like he's saying. Listen, love, we all like the idea of love, but love takes a lot of work. <laughs> love takes a lot of action. We all love the idea of love, but really not when we have to put it into action but it is worth it. It is a picture of Christ, how his love was sacrificial, how his love came to us, how his love forgave us, and this is how we're to be in the body of Christ. Amen? This cannot be just a message, obviously. I really do believe, probably for some of us, maybe there's someone you need to write a letter to. Maybe there's someone you need to forgive. Maybe there's someone you need to go to and say, would you please forgive me? Maybe there's some unsaid, unspoken things in this. I really do believe this needs to be put into action. And I don't know how to do that necessarily, other than I pray that the Spirit does that. Listen, know what we are going to do? We are going to take communion and remember the greatest love for us that forgave us. For We know that Jesus' blood 
the shedding of blood is for the forgiveness of sins. And so as we hold this cup and we look at this juice, we say, Jesus, this reminds me of how your blood was shed for my forgiveness. Now help me forgive. Who do I need to forgive? Help me walk in forgiveness in this. Hey, Jesus, your body was broken for me so that we could become one body. Your body was divided so that we, beca- we could become one in you and in Christ. And if you are a believer in Jesus, take, eat, celebrate. This is for your fullness of joy. Communion is not necessarily some sad, somber time, but so that you might give thanks and have fullness of joy. And if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you can believe in Jesus Christ and call upon the Lord right now, believe on him, pray and ask for forgiveness, and there's forgiveness in Jesus. It's not this little cracker or this little juice that saves you. It's the blood of Jesus that was shed for your forgiveness of sins, and believe on him and trust in him, and then take and eat and take and drink. You're welcome too, because Jesus invites all of us to this table. Come, I'm at the door. I'm knocking. If anyone opens the door of his heart, I'll come in and dine with him and he with me. And Jesus says, come on in. Come on in. He wants to invite you into this. So we're going to take communion. It's a practical thing. If you got it, I, I couldn't find the cracker. It's on the bottom. The cracker's on the bottom. <laughs> and then the juice you'll see on top. And just take and eat and drink. And I just want to give you guys some time and some, and some space to say, Lord, would you speak to me? Lord, would you show me who I need to forgive? Lord, would you remind me of how much I've been forgiven? One last verse with you guys, for you guys. Listen up. In Luke 7, this woman comes to Jesus, and she's just known as being just a sinner. That's just her title. And she falls at the feet of Jesus. She's kissing Jesus. She's like, she's so thankful to be with Jesus. And the Pharisees are going, how can you let this woman do this? Don't you know who she is? And Jesus says something in Luke 7, 47. He says, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Meaning, if you've been forgiven of much, you're going to love much. If you think you've been forgiven of little, you're going to love a little. Realize that you've been forgiven of much. You know, I've been forgiven of much. It must lead to loving much. Don't think for one second you've been forgiven a little. We're going to take some communion. We're going to worship Jesus. We're going to say, reveal those things in our life. And we're going to try to put this into practice. Amen? Let's pray.